So, coming to you live from World Championship in San Jose. Welcome to the Living Legends Podcast. How's it going, everyone? And welcome back to another episode of the Living Legends Podcast, a weekly flesh and blood podcast where we talk about all aspects of the flesh and blood trading card game. As always, I am joined by Bill, who is above me today. Hello, everybody. Welcome. We have an exciting one for you, as always. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a good one, as well as Az, who's a kind of diagonal here today. Hello. I'll try to do that. We'll keep that in there. Yeah, hope everyone's doing well. Wherever you might be watching. That's a good start. As Bill said, we've got a special one. Smooth. Smooth like whiskey. And then we also have a guest joining us today, Brian Gottlieb, who is... I would say, in the Flesh and Blood community, mostly known for his uh, work in the coverage booth at major events such as, most recently, Worlds, but also at the Pro Tour and other events as well. But we'll also talk a little bit about uh, some other things that he might be doing related to Flesh and Blood, and uh, I'll have Brian uh, say, say hello, I guess. Wait, are, are there things that aren't related to flesh and blood? Because as far as I can tell, based on the way I live my life, there is only flesh and blood. It consumes about <laughs> 25 of my 24 hours a day. So, I... yeah, As soon as somebody finds something that isn't flesh and blood related, please let me know. so that yeah, I, I would like to hear about it. <laughs> I, can, uh, I can relate a little bit to that, uh, I'll be honest. I, I try to talk about other card games on my own channel, but, uh, you know, it's mostly flesh and blood. I, I like to say it's 90% 90, 90 flesh and blood. Um, and yeah. Brian's on here. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the Assassin class. We're going to talk about uh, working at LSS, uh, design, development, and a bunch of a bunch of other stuff. It's going to be a really good one. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to forego the uh, week in Flesh and Blood and just jump right on into the questions if you guys are ready. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, basically, for a lot of folks listening to the podcast, and I know this from talking with my own community and uh, just from the Flesh and Blood community at large, a lot of folks playing Flesh and Blood, it's their first trading card game, right? There are some folks who come in from other card games here and there, but it's their first trading card game. So for those folks, um, and for uh, folks from other card games who might not know who you are, Brian, kind of give us a quick rundown of your history with uh, trading card games and you know the, the gaming industry. Yeah, first, I just want to mention that I, I agree with you. There are folks who are finding Flesh and Blood as their first card game, and that is awesome to me. I don't know what it is about Flesh and Blood, but I've spoken to so many people who are like, you know, I've seen trading card games for now 30 years, and for whatever reason, Flesh and Blood was the one that drew me in. Uh, so that's an awesome thing to see. Me, personally, though, I've been in TCGs forever. Since the beginning, uh, you know, maybe didn't get my hands on that first alpha release, but I was I was in the mix very soon after that, as soon as cards were readily available. So we're talking like uh, the revised era of oh, Magic yeah. was when I started playing, and you know, along with the revised era of Magic also came a million other TCGs. And mm -hmm. to the extent that my major, meager young man budget could support them, I tried them all. I, I played absolutely every TCG I could get my hands on. Uh, however, none of them quite in the same fashion I played Magic. And that was that was my game. That was the thing I did for years and years. I competed in, you know, the, the regional scenes. I competed on the Pro Tours. Eventually trans translated that into a job writing about magic for a very long time over on Star City Games. Uh, that moved into coverage of magic events for the same company. And then I started doing a podcast with my good friend Jerry Thompson, the Arena Deckless podcast. And we've 
we just sort of uh, moved full scale into magic content production at that point. I, I was previously a lawyer in another lifetime and didn't love it, but obviously loved gaming very much. And when the opportunity came and things were going really well, just leaped in full force into the, the writing coverage podcasting thing. Uh, and then things kind of stopped going all that well in that space, at least as far as I'm concerned. There are some financial metrics that would tell you otherwise, but uh, was not finding the same love, the same enjoyment of the magic space. The competitive scene was starting to dry up. Uh, unfortunately, Star City laid off a bunch of their writers, yeah, laid off that. their coverage team, and kind of left me looking for something new. And, you know, I'm the type of person who stays very open to opportunities and ideas and started to hear this buzz around this new card game, Flesh and Blood. And I'm like, well, you know, I suspect this is nonsense. Obviously, this is some kind of grifter scam, like every other TCG that has come <laughs> along yeah. uh, after all the these years. They're, they're never good, right? They're, they're just like they're flashes in the pan, never going to last. And then I played my first games of Flesh and Blood and I was like, oh, wait a second. This is yeah. this is not the same thing we have seen a million times before. This is something special. This is something unique. And I just kind of fell in love with the game and uh, things rapidly snowballed from that point. Uh, what what uh, set was the newest when you first started playing Flesh and Blood? Tail End, Tail End of Monarch. So okay. uh, Tales of Aria, like preview season was just starting to go on. Like that's the first preview season I remember being engaged with and just being over the moon excited for the new cards. And so when you actually think about it, like to the extent that Flesh and Blood has integrated itself into my life, hasn't been that long. Like Tales of Aria is not that far off in the grand scheme of things. Uh, but it, I, I don't know. It feels like this game is part of my soul at this point. It's just ingrained so deeply. When it's you started as well, obviously, uh, it's like you, you started in Tales of Aria or you know, the post-Monarch. Did you did you like delve into those cards as they were coming out, or did you like revisit the older set? Like revisited everything, the... everything. Yeah. As soon as I found the game, basically, like so, like there was it was kind of a bounce off at first. Like I played starting with the Monarch Blitz decks. Oh yeah, I oh, hate yeah. the Monarch Blitz decks. I'm I'm very openly critical about them. <laughs> okay, I've yeah. spoke about that internally. I don't think they did a good job introducing people to the game, uh, and so it was like. I thought there was something there, but there's also something missing in that Monarch play experience. So like I, I didn't check out, but I wasn't completely 100% in. I just like, I want to see more. I want to see some other things. So at that point, I both started following Tales of Aria news and then went back and started looking at Welcome yeah. to Wraith Heroes, started looking at the Arcane Rising Heroes. And that's where the game really unfurled itself to me. You know, I went through whatever site I was using to get deck lists, uh, made a basically every deck I possibly could that was in the metagame and just had this huge gauntlet box of every <laughs> metagame deck, basically one for every hero. And I would just work through them a lot of times using, you know, either an online client or playing with my brother in person and familiarize myself with the back catalog. And that's what really sold me is when I familiarized myself with the constructed metagame. Nice. Uh, welcome to Wraith is just a fantastic set for a, a myriad of yeah. reasons, and it's one that uh, if a, a new player is starting and they want like a, a good, easy onboarding experience, I think Welcome to Wraith is always a, a good set to point to because it really covers like the basics of Flesh and Blood. So, I mean, if someone's out there listening to this podcast and you're new to Flesh and Blood, and I know there's a lot of new newcomers to Flesh and Blood these days, um, yeah. and you're like, you know, coming in looking at Dynasty, Dynasty is not the, the best set to start with because it's a, for, for multiple reasons, it's a supplemental set or a, an expansion set is what they're calling it now. But uh, go back and check out Welcome to Wraith. 
it's it's a great set and currently boxes are very very cheap so uh yeah yeah and you know i'll, I'll say something too to those players i, I you can you can put me down for this we're going to do a better job of onboarding people to the game it's something that we realized was not being done well enough we're going to make sure that's being done much much better in the future and i think that's good news for all of us too because yeah you know when you love a game as much as we do you want to introduce it to everyone yeah. we're going to give better tools to get players onboarded to really get them to the core experience of flesh and blood and ensure there's none of those monarch bounce off situations like blitz decks any kind of intro products those will be we learn so much all the time about how to better gear the game towards new players and we're working really hard on that so everything in tcg takes time all this stuff takes time it never comes out right away but we recognize that it needs to be better and it will be better in the future sweet yeah because that that whole process is like at the moment it's governed by community members isn't it there's people building learn to play kits there's people building like cheap budget versions of decks yep. so there is definitely a space to explore with that definitely i'd say yeah yeah that's I, good I, that you're addressing it as well i thought the classic battles was a good step in the right direction it was absolutely I, yeah i don't think it was you know obviously i don't think it was 100 percent there there's a lot of room to grow but it's a good it's a good uh move in the right direction so yeah I, with that said i'm really looking forward to what uh what you guys have in store uh next year i think it's going to be really exciting um and if uh, those didn't catch on by now, um, Brian does now currently, I think, do you officially work at LSS or are you more like I, a contractor? Kind of I am a contractor and I love that I still get to keep that as a cop out because if I say something <laughs> really stupid, I'm just going to be like, oh, you, you shouldn't listen to me anyway. I'm just a contractor. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I do like to be clear about that. Not an official LSS employee. Everything I say, completely non-binding. I could say whatever nonsense I want and I'm not speaking for LSS. <laughs> <laughs> nobody tells me nothing yeah right. <laughs> james uh, white listening to this episode like uh <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> yeah yeah um well with that said then how did you come about working with uh legend story studios yeah it's a pretty brief and simple story uh an interesting one the aforementioned moment where star city lays off a bunch of their writing staff and you know i see the writing on the wall as far as competitive magic and getting back in the booth for these games and kind of as a separate thing i had just been tweeting about my experience with flesh and blood exploring flesh and blood and you know noting that i really liked it and i just kind of tweeted one day hey anyone need an employee in the gaming space and then james dm'd me i think he first tweeted at me and he's like what do you think about moving to new zealand and i'm like well <laughs> I, I never say no to anything i'll i'll we should at least have a conversation uh, we did have that conversation. Conversation went really well. That moved into a temporary job. That went really well. And now it's become this full-time contracting position where I'm uh, extremely involved in all the stuff we have coming out in the future. And uh, I'm really excited to do it. It's, it's honestly a dream job in so many ways. There's so many things I love about working on this game, working with LSS. I, I just am so fortunate that things broke the way they did because all of this just sounds like this dumb string of coincidences like timing and a random tweet and it just worked out to be the most fortuitous situation ever so i'm so grateful for it yeah dude that's awesome um uh yeah it does sound like a like a dream job and uh hey you know is uh i think i asked you this at, at worlds uh is new zealand ever on the docket for you potentially in the future oh, yeah yeah, I, I never say never. I mean, we have a really good workflow right now. I think we're we're getting great things done. I 
have been to New Zealand before. I'll go again for yes. sure. And you know, that is, that is mostly working for us. Uh, that being said, proximity is great. You know, it's just great to be able to sit down over coffee with James and hammer some things out. And that's, it's hard to, to be distant sometimes, but yeah. Yeah. we'll see what happens. I, I don't close myself off to any possibilities. So, and I do have to say, I think it's really awesome that uh, James and LSS are branching out to folks like you, like branching out outside of uh, New Zealand for, um, you know, onboarding folks into their team. Um, obviously, they have a fantastic team. They, they made this game that we all truly love, but um, I think it's good to, to broaden horizons to make the game uh, the best it could possibly be. So um, I think it's really good and smart that they're they're doing that to be honest no i agree and they've, they've done a great job find i mean the talent they have from new zealand is is top oh, yeah. notch they they have done mm -hmm. a great job finding some of the best people throughout new zealand it's just at some point you found them all right. and you have to yeah. go find more people somewhere else and you know that's not to say there's nobody in new zealand who would i'm sure there's excellent excellent candidates out there in new zealand it's just you're always better off casting as wide a net as you possibly can get away with mm -hmm. yeah for sure um, so let's get a little bit more, uh, focused, I would say. So I, I do know, uh, that you de helped design and or develop the assassin class quite a bit. Um, how did you get on what I'm going to call a T team assassin? Like basically what, what <laughs> led you to developing and designing the class? Yeah. So actually that, that brief one month gig that I mentioned the first day was here's assassin take a look at it and okay. <laughs> uh you know reviewing assassin and seeing where it was at and ultimately where it was at was not working uh things needed to change about it and you know at that point i was kind of like look i've you know because i i had done development work for wizards of the coast before on uh specifically neon dynasty okay uh, the, the most recent kamigawa set and a lot of it there is just like well, tell us if this card is too good, and that's what we need from you. And, it, you know, you would suggest a, a potential fix, and it would be taken into consideration, but it wasn't really so much like, you know, give us a whole new solution, design a new card, just, just tell us where these cards are at. And so where we're running into these problems with Assassin, it was kind of my moment where I'm like, look, I don't know if you guys want this from me, but, like, here is an idea I have to maybe do something else. And, uh, you know, all, all the all the folks were very receptive to my ideas and we, we ran with a bunch of them and it kind of got us to the place where Assassin is the class that you uh, you know and love now. And I think the success of working on this project kind of paved the, the path for for more more focused work, more detailed work. And uh, a lot of that you'll be seeing in the coming years. Yeah, dude, like I uh, for, for regular viewers of the podcast and of my channel, they'll know that Assassin is something that I've been wanting for a very long time, ever since I saw it in the lore book. My channel's called Red Zone Rogue. I I love, like, the, 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 the rogue aesthetic. When I played World of Warcraft, I played Rogue. I actually played Assassination Rogue. Um, and uh, I think you guys delivered. I, I was not disappointed at all. I, I, I love Arachne and the Assassin class and the potential, uh, because uh, the card pool from Dynasty is pretty small. Uh, so I can't wait to see more, more assassin stuff, um, <laughs> in the, in the pipeline. 
Um, more pits borders, more pits borders, please. Oh yeah, more pits borders. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how much you can talk about this, uh, but I figured I'll ask anyway. Um, so I've heard rumors that Assassin was initially supposed to be in Arcane Rising as one of the four heroes in Arcane Rising, and for whatever reason, it didn't make the cut. Um, do you know why it didn't make the cut in Arcane Rising? No, I honestly don't. And, you know, that's before my time. Uh, certainly, I've, I've talked with folks about the history of the class and, you know, how it was, from most accounts, it tended to be one of those four heroes in Arcane Rising. And it just didn't work. And kind of given, given how I found the Assassin class, like where it was when it, it came to me, I I get that. There's there's so much to balance in the assassin class. It's so different than the other heroes of Arcane Rising that fitting that into that draft environment seems like such a huge challenge. Huge mm -hmm. huge challenge. And one of the things that really freed us with Arachne was getting outside of the draft model because it's when you're introducing a hero with this super limited card pool into a world of now very developed heroes, heroes that in some cases have their base set and now three supplemental sets, yeah. if not more. I mean, certainly, you know, where we were talking about talented heroes, they're, they're dealing with massive card pools. It's so, so challenging to provide a hero with the tools they're going to need to be relevant in that existing metagame and still be balanced in a draft state. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that has kind of always applied to Assassin just because of how un unique it is how it needed to kind of operate on a different axis than some of the other yeah. heroes. And th that seems to be why it didn't quite fit. And also, like, you know, if you're looking for... So much of the theming of Arcane Rising is, like, the top of your deck matters, right? Yeah. yeah. If you're yeah. trying to throw a wrench into that experience, messing with the top of the deck, I, I mean, like, how much of a wrench is too much of a wrench, right? You have to kind of respect what the heroes are trying to do at the same time. So, you know, all kinds of developmental challenges pop up along the way. I don't know what happened during Arcane Rising, but I, I see some of the seeds why it would have been a tough fit. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Draft and Limited. Can, is there the possibility that Assassin makes its way into a draft set at some point in the future? I mean, I, th I think it would be crazy to say there's no possibility of it, right? And anything can happen. Certainly, we are open to exploring all of our all of our talents, all of our classes in every conceivable form. Uh, and one of the things too, like Assassin is kind of unique in terms of classes because what does it mean to be an assassin? Like if I say you're a guardian, you kind of get this image of this this bulking, armored up, defensive type hero. If I say you're an assassin, I'm describing a job. And when you think mm -hmm. about things like say the hitman franchise if you're familiar with the hitman yeah. video games like the the essence of those games is like find the way you want to kill something <laughs> yeah. right like they you can do assassinations in a myriad of different ways and i i think that's what's so interesting about assassin is like assassin doesn't have to be one thing it's a task and i think given that freedom that flexibility i would i would be shocked if at some point we don't see assassins in in multiple forms of flesh and blood nice well i'm very much looking forward to it. At this point, I'm so in love with the class. Every new um, like draftable set that comes out, I'm just be like, "Is there assassin? I want to. I want to draft. I want to draft assassin, man." Um, I love limited. Limited is one of my favorite ways to play any card. Me game. too. Me it's, too. It's so much fun. Both both draft and sealed, but 
especially draft. And uh, and that when I when I talk about like how excited I am for the coming year, there's so many lessons we've learned about limited in flesh and blood at this point. And like I said, lag time is is a beating. It, it's so tough not to be able to immediately implement <laughs> those lessons. I really believe that when we next return to limited, you're going to see so many lessons that we've learned about that format reflected in it. And I'm so hopeful that it hits with people and they really appreciate the next limited format. Yeah, I... that's one of the things that I've I've just noticed about LSS in general, um, especially like I, I come from a magic background as well. So I have a lot of experience with some of the um, the issues that you were sort of describing earlier on. Um, something that has hit with me from day one of starting Flesh and Blood is how much LSS is willing to actually like not necessarily admit mistakes, but basically admit mistakes and, and learn from them and grow from them and continually improve. Um, so yeah, saying that like you've that, like LSS has looked at the limited format and is going to implement these positive steps to make it as best as they possibly can. I have absolute faith in that. I think that that's like almost a given, um, with everything else that I've seen from LSS. Um, it's yeah. one of the things that sort of, especially when we were talking about dynasty that really bothered me when it's like, you know, people are looking at this at this new set at or at, at this new class, Assassin, and they're saying, well, I just don't think that it, it like works yet. And it's like, OK, well, we also got in Everfest, we got Icelander and people are like, oh, that class, she doesn't she doesn't do anything. She doesn't work. And then one set later, it's like, oh, by the way, this is like one of the most dominant but, heroes. Yeah, in yeah. The just win, wins world champs, you know, no big yeah, deal. people are complaining they the legendary boots got banned because of her. Like, yeah, like just have faith it takes time lss knows what they're doing <laughs> for the most part and not not so. only they know what they're doing but they're like getting better at it and like we can see them getting yeah. better at it and like you know we all love flesh and blood here it's personally my favorite you know card game of all time and it's only getting better and that's like crazy to think actually <laughs> like it's already so good but it's only just yeah. like getting better and so i think flesh and blood fans have a, a lot to look forward to and a lot to uh um I think 2023, like I said, is going to be an awesome year. And like like Brian said, uh, you know, it'll be awesome to see some of these implementations that uh, you were talking about, like, come to fruition, hopefully, um, like, with the next draftable set. That'd be super cool. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, was, this is just a, I guess, like, a, not, not a super deep question. Was the assassin always Arachne? <laughs> Like when you started on it, was it Arachne or was it more of a nebulous idea of like we have a character idea or was it like this is Arachne, he's got a big old or they've got a big old shoulder thing? It was not always Arachne. Okay. And that, that's all I'll say about it. Okay. Because one, one of the things is that we are very prone, uh, you know, I don't want to say there's no bad ideas. Sometimes there's bad ideas, but <laughs> sometimes there's ideas where their time just isn't right. Okay. And you haven't quite fleshed out exactly what needs to be fleshed out. They need a little bit more time in the oven. And I think uh, James in particular is really good about just having this deep well of things that you can go back to and revisit and use as foundational stuff in the future. Um, so I, I think there's a good chance that ultimately where Arachne started is, is not a concept that has gone forever, just a concept that's gone for now. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um... I guess with that said, then, is how, how much has Assassin changed since you started working on it? You, you did say it was at a pretty different state, um, but just like how... Was it always different. mill? Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that too. Most, most implementations that I worked on were 
in some way interacting with your opponent's deck, I would say. And oh, you can okay. see that as, as the holdover from Arcane Rising, you know, especially when it comes to like messing with the top of the deck. Uh, that, that has always been something on the radar because it does feel very flavorful. There's this idea of like stalking your prey yeah. and getting information yeah. and learning more. And the other thing we kept going back to when talking about how we wanted Assassin to feel, how playing against Assassin should feel, it's that nowhere and nothing is safe. Mm-hmm. And that's really reflected in the idea that your, your deck is not safe. You can't guarantee that you're going to have enough resource to continue to play the game. Uh, with things like Shred, oh, your equipment yes. is not safe. Oh, I love We can go ahead so and blow up your temporary equipment. Your life total is certainly not safe. Your blocks are not safe. There is, there is nothing that is safe about playing against an assassin. And part of that is like you have to challenge on multiple fronts. You have to go ahead and say, I will take away your resources from you and just limit your ability to play this game. And I, I think, you know, as much as milling can be a very divisive mechanic, I would say. Like I, I I'm not I, I'm not unaware of sort of I don't want, I hate the term casual. I, I do think there is like a, a level of less enf- enfranchised player that really despises mill. They want the chance to oh, yeah. play with their cards. They want yeah. to use the cards they put in their deck. They don't want you to take them away from them. I'm aware of that. And it's something that we are very cognizant of when designing a hero like Arachne. We want to respect those players. We want to make sure there is space for everyone to play the game the way they want to play it. I, I think Arachne finds just this sweet spot where... They're not ripping cards off the top of your deck, you know, maybe with the exception of like Eradicate, but for the most part, (laughs) not ripping cards off the top of your deck, just slowly death by a thousand cuts and removing one card, removing one card. And I I think it finds a really sweet implementation of Mill, especially as it relates to flesh and blood. Like it's a really cool concept here. Yeah, yeah, it's like um, it's like the the whole feeling as well against playing against it. You're always on edge, and you're always having to react to what the what you what the information is that's going into your banish zone because you know that as a ranger, I play Azalea, but seeing that red in the ledger go in the banish zone, I'm like, oh no, I've only got two left now. So it's like interacting with that whole space as well, which hasn't been done before. And what you don't know as well, like what if I put all your red in the ledgers on the bottom of your deck, right? Like that's that's another huge thing. And again, no information is safe. Arachne can manipulate information as it gets to you, which I think is just... Information, yeah. Yep. It's so, so flavorful. And I, one of the big things that really helped with the development of Arachne was having this like awesome, awesome dynasty set piece to work within like it was so so inspiring it injected so much flavor so much like goal setting into this hero that uh, you know i can't say enough about the creative folks at lss and how easily they they set us up to do our jobs it's just they set the table for us so so well oh yeah dude like it's brilliant it's like in in being in leal and just like oh yeah the emperor's here everyone was like taking pictures of it and then suddenly he's fucking dead sorry <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <That's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly he's right. dead. He's like, regicide, here it is. Well, I was just like, I, yeah. I, I think it's one of the coolest setups for a preview season I've ever seen in card gaming. Yeah. I, I loved every second of it. I agree. Oh, yeah. As someone who's been <laughs> around as, as long as you have, man, like I agree, it's so cool. It's it's something that I, after I saw it, I'm like, people are going to remember this. And I think that's one of the most important oh, yeah. things. Like, it's it's memorable and it's exciting. And they, you know, they set the Emperor up to be this big deal. They, they sent out spoilers to people like Az 
to like, you know, you were invited by the courts of Ulcor, the emperor is going to bestow upon, yeah. you know, the riches of the kingdom. Like, and then oh, he's, yeah, I can't then wait he's to get dead. this bow. Oh, he's yeah. dead. <laughs> he's dead. Um, <laughs> I'm getting chills right now thinking about the the moment in that, uh, you know, the first cinematic where just the boards pop up, the emperor is dead. Oh, it's so good. Like, I, oh, I can, yeah. I can picture oh, yeah. the reveal in my head. I thought it was just such an awesome, awesome moment. Uh, what Alex did as well with the content as well, when it like it like shuddered to like the the dark version as well, yep. just like it's yep. just like oh yeah, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, I nice. I mentioned a few times in in videos, but I I can't help but mention it even more. I I, I really do think the creative team are like the unsung heroes of Flesh and Blood. Right, one hundred percent. Like James mm. gets a lot of interviews and limelight, but like Robbie Wen and everyone else on the creative team, MJ, they're they're fantastic. MJ, yeah, they, they do so much, so so yeah. much, and like. So much of your job as a designer, at least the way I see my job as a designer, is like just hitting the ball off the tee. Like they're setting it up for you. They're telling you, here's the story we want to tell. And I'm like, when you tell me the story, and this goes back to like the robustness of the flesh and blood game system. One of the reasons I was drawn to working on flesh and blood is that I firmly believe that this rules engine can tell any story you want to tell. Whatever it is you want to represent via these cards, you can find a way to do it. And if they're giving you good stories to represent, my job's easy at that point. Yeah. Like they're just making it very simple for me. Yeah, and it's like that, mm, nice. Oh, go ahead, that go ahead, is Bill. easily easily one of the things that I, I can agree with you without even having to think about it, because the <laughs> thing that drew me to this game, honestly, when I was going through, I started at just about the same time as you did. Um, my first ever event was the Tales of Aria pre-release at my local game store. And uh, when I was going through and I was looking at all the heroes to see which ones I liked the most and whatever, and I looked at Azalea, something that's popular uh, among the other members of the podcast, specifically. Everyone here actually <laughs> loves Azalea. It's great. Um, but the, the fact that I looked at this ranger class and I looked at the arrows and I was like, oh, my God, you have to knock them in your bow first before you shoot them. The fact that the game just tells you that, that it's like that is what that action is, blew my mind. Like the, the, the fact that that can actually be represented without introducing a new game space like Yu-Gi-Oh would do or introducing a new type of card, like a new full different type of permanent like, like Magic would, was just crazy. Like all they had to do was write mm. arrow on this card and it just is an arrow in this, in your like the theater of your mind. Uh, it, uh, it was crazy. It was so cool. No, so, yeah. Dude, resonance is absolutely everything to me. Like, I, I think it is one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to do too much of this on this conversation, but one of the things that has been failing me about magic is that I just don't find the resonance in the cards. Like, the mechanics are no longer expressing the ideas they're supposed to represent to me. It just feels like a jumble of words. And that's really sad because I, I do think, like, magic is very, I mean, let's be fair. They've, mind it for 30 years like the numbers sheer number of cards it's it's very very hard to continue yeah. to produce at that level so i i do give them credit for finding anything to pull out of it at this point uh but there's not the same resonance i don't feel like the cards reflect that flavor as well they're often just a mess of numbers whereas i still feel it with every single flesh flesh and blood card that's being designed there's still that resonance there yeah, yeah. It's even just something as simple as shred being like, this is a combat trick, <laughs> except it tells a story. I'm like it is so glad you brought shred back up. <laughs> I want to talk about shred. I love this card. I don't know if it's my favorite card, but I love shred for so many reasons. I mean, the, the power level is great. Um, I mean, I blue shred is one of my favorite, uh, blue shred awesome. in particular is my favorite color of shred, but I love 
that it encapsulates assassins so much because by itself, it doesn't actually do more damage, right? Like if your opponent doesn't block, your attack doesn't do more damage. It doesn't cause you to do more damage. But what it does is it weakens your opponent and it gets them really where it hurts, right? Like, and that's so flavorful in my opinion. It's not just like, oh, I'm, I'm so pumped cool. up like a, like a, like a warrior attack. Um, I love, I love Shred. It's, it's, it's such a flavorful card. Um, yep, I, I think like pro probably Regicide is my favorite assassin card, but Shred's probably my second favorite. I mean, Regicide I is is very sweet, Regicide. and I'll be honest, I I've been playing in some events. I played in like the 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 Clash, the Clash event. I'm we're doing a an Ultimate Pit fight later today. I run Regicide no matter what, just because and I I love the flavor. It, it might do something eventually, but. I don't care because I love I love the flavor of it, and it's also it's a blue, you know, it's a blue that blocks for three. But yeah, it's um, it's legit good. I mean, like it, it'll find its spot. Uh, assassin games go very long. It's a blue block three. It you're very happy pitching it in the early game. I, I honestly think it's just a fine card to play, and I very rarely sideboard it out. It's not about just targeting royals, yeah. uh, but I, I can't wait to the first time I assassinate a royal. I just can't <laughs> yeah. wait. Well. Oh. We're, we're going to be doing a stream after this, an ultimate pit fight, and we will have the Emperor. Uh, D good good friend uh, Diem Armada will be playing the Emperor, so we'll see if I can if I can pull off a Regicide on him. I'm, I'm rooting and there is you, no Yoji to protect him. Right. There's no Yoji. Yoji's a great Yoji protector didn't. anyway, but... Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yoji didn't protect him, let's be real. Yeah. No, exactly. Um, He's absolutely... But yeah, I, I, I still think my favorite interaction is if you have the Crown of Dominion on as a Runeblade, and you have um, the, the boots, the boots that make instant speed um and you instant speed a cash out in response to a regicide you can be like i'm not a king anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah Dude, crown, crown is such an awesome card you know not to get too much into like the strategic side of things but like yeah i am surprised how little respect people give crown i i think it's a legitimately very very good card in quite a few shells and it just has yeah. not been picked up in that fashion yet so i, I think the the one that stands out more in the community right now is uh, Indromai because you get that yep. you get that gold, so you have uh, something to pitch into on turn one, so you're not just stuck with a bunch of dragons in your hand. Um, but also, like getting a free gold means that at any point, if you draw something like a cash in, then that's just like a mm. free draw two, which is pretty yep. good. Yeah, that's um, a yeah. that's a pot of greed, baby. <laughs> yeah, but before honestly, before I saw Mask of Perdition, like as spoiler season was rounding out, I'm like. I, I want to run the crown and assassin so I can have this this my cash ins are better. And then I saw the perdition mask perdition. I'm like, okay, never mind. Forget forget the crown. I'm going in with the mask. But but before I saw it, the ultimate disrespect as assassin. <laughs> You're just wearing the crown. Put on the crown. The best the best part is is in the regicide artwork. The uh uh, uh holding the crown. It's like all covered in blood, implying that he killed the emperor with his own crown. With his own crown. And yeah, <laughs> he put on he put on the crown. Crown uh, one-handed weapon confirmed in the next set. Dude, that crown looks <laughs> painful, man. Do you see all the spikes on that thing? Very pointy crown. Yeah. Yeah. It's got big. It's big. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be like made of some very uh, uh, light metal because that thing, if it's, it could weigh a ton, man. All right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um. So getting getting a little a little back on track. Um. The the big flavor of. Uh, assassin for Dynasty, at least, other than awesome cards like Shred, is, is like Contract. Um, how did the Contract mechanic come about? What, was it always kind of there, or like did you guys develop it as you're developing uh, Arachne? I, I'm I'm hesitating. 
only because okay. I so one thing that's important to note is no matter like who the progenitor of an idea is, yeah. it's always standing on the foundation of everyone surrounding you. It, you know, either you're taking bits and pieces from someone else's idea or like I mentioned, creative have set you up so, so well. I, I think contract was my idea, I think. And I could be wrong because there were so many ideas flying back and forth at this point in time. I, I know for a fact that the equipment suite was my idea. And I can't see how I would have gotten to that equipment suite minus contract also being part of what I was looking at. Uh, and I remember just like looking at some assassins and being like, you know, this element is missing. Why is why is there an assassination going on? Why are they? Why are they targeting these various things? And mm-hmm. the contracts just made sense at that point. And then, you know, one of the things about designing flesh and blood is you get one solid idea. It quickly spirals into the next iteration of that idea and the next step and the next step. And then the whole suite comes together very quickly. So you might spend weeks pounding your head against the wall, just not being able to find it. And then this one thing comes together that really just suits the flavor and the mechanics you're going for and it can snowball everything from there uh and so contract was certainly later in the process it was a rule struggle i'll tell you it it was really hard to get to work under the rules but awesome awesome rules team obviously in place folks like josh scott working really hard to just understand how this works and again like that just goes back to none of this works in isolation like no idea can come from one person because a million people have to make it work um but a contract was definitely later in the process, and uh, it was the thing that really let us hit the ground running and and find what was important about this hero and how to best tell the hero's story. Yeah, like I love how flavorful it is too. So like, uh, so when I got my preview card, so I previewed uh, Eradicate. Uh, I didn't see any of the other ones, so I didn't actually know exactly how it worked. I, I clarified, I asked, but it was like it just says like you are contracted to banish yellow cards and then i read the rest because my card was eradicate um and i was like okay i, I kind of uh, i kind of assume it does what i think it does and it, what's so great about the rules and how they've like hammered out the rules for contract in particular is that it does do what i thought it did like like they, they the flavor of it works well with the mechanics right mm-hmm. um so i think that i think that's a, a huge one also you, you mentioned the equipment um so did you are you the one who d- who designed or came up with the idea for the mask and the the black tech whispers? In in some in some form, like I wouldn't say like as they are printed, but in in some sense, like the idea of you can spend your silver to gear up and do these things, and you know they probably went through a million iterations before finally settling on what they were probably both broken iterations and underpowered iterations before we finally find that sweet spot. It's, that's generally how things go. But uh, yeah, it eventually ended up with Black Tech Whisperers, which you have in hand. I love this card so much. Me um, too. I, I no joke. I've talked about this a couple times, uh, including our like top five list that we did a couple episodes ago. I think this might be my favorite card. Just it's my favorite card, like of all time. Previously, one of my favorite cards ever made for any card game, uh, and I don't want to talk about Magic too much, but uh, is a card from Magic called um, Recurring Nightmare. I love Recurring Nightmare. Of I love everything yep. that it does. Um, this reminds me of it, but like, it's different. Um, oh, it's so good. I love it so much. I, I, I think I like the Black Tech Whispers a little bit more than the Mask, but they're both so good. And the, when I was getting Dynasty, these were like 
my two big like I got to get the cold foil versions of them, which yep. I, which I do have right here. But um, yeah, I just wanted to gush on those two cards because I love them so. I love them so well, much. I, I mean, I'm, I'm so right here with you. I, I I love the pattern of them. I love like they kind of look broken when you look at them. You're like, mm. how can I possibly just be allowed to use this equipment over and over and over? But the limitations placed on them, and this is certainly this entirely goes to the dev team because my first versions were probably completely broken and totally unacceptable. But to where they are now, their balance, how smart they are, how much they force complicated decisions for both you and your opponent. I just think they're such a huge success. They fall in that perfect sweet spot of like almost awe inspiring with their power, but never feeling unfair. And that's yeah. a really, really hard spot to get to. Yeah. I... And there's a million little pieces that come to th with that. And you know, it's everything from choosing to use uh, battle worn as opposed to temper that makes a huge yeah. difference in how effective that card is uh, what is going to be the catalyst for the go again is it just a raw go again or is it an on hit you know there's a bunch of ways you can do that and all those decisions I think ended up in such a good place and that's entirely the result of the dev team putting in a ton of work and just getting them it, right it's so smart like there's like one of the things I was thinking about was uh, the silver so it, it's two silvers to get it back, which is the exact same amount of silvers that you need to play a cash in for free. So that's saying like this effect is about the same as drawing two cards, which is very, very powerful. But you know, if you are put into the situation where you could either cash in your two silver to draw two cards or get this, that's a real question that you have to make or a real decision that you have to make while playing the game. And um, I, I love it so much. There's so much awesome design in this card um, and, and the mask as well. But uh, the black tech in particular, I, I really love because, like, you know, once again, when I saw assassin cards, uh, you know, when I saw my um, uh, eradicate, I was like, okay, so I want to run this with Snapdragon scalers to give a go again. Like, I didn't even know about the the black tech, but the the fact that black tech isn't strictly better than Snapdragons because Snapdragons always gives you go again. This one you have to hit, so your opponent can actually mm -hmm. play around it. I, I really think the design is is super smart. Um, it's so good. Well, another card Opening up the, the D-React angle is so, so important. Like it just, if you are ready for the assassination attempt, I mean, look back to, to Regicide, look back to the Emperor. If you are yeah. ready for the assassination attempt, you're going to take steps to prevent it. And if you have your D-React at the ready, you're going to be able to go ahead and stop that go again. So I, I, I do think it is just a really, really flavorful, oh, yeah. smart representation of the entire concept. It's it's so tense, too, because every single time I play it, no joke, every single time I activate Black Tech, I'm like, uh, attack reaction, Black Tech whispers, and then I like pause, I'm like, do you have a, do you have a reaction? <laughs> I'm like... You're going to get blown out if they do. I'm You're like, gonna please, get please don't sink below. Please don't sink below. Like, yeah. every single time. It's it's so much fun. Um, I uh, from from the flavor standpoint, I do actually have uh, a question, which is very important to me and probably only me um, in terms <laughs> of the flavor of paying silver to recur your equipment from the graveyard. Is it in in the flavor sphere? Is it um, going to buy new pieces of equipment or is it repairing those pieces of equipment? <laughs> Extremely important. <laughs> Pure theme. <laughs> I, I have always. I have always envisioned it as going to buy new pieces of equipment, not okay, repairing that's them. That's the right answer. <laughs> um, it, a lot of it is based around like this, the nature of the pits mm -hmm. and how it's just this kind of like freewheeling economy and like every, everything in the pits is disposable. That's the way I always look at it. Like everything in the pits is cast aside, ready to hit the trash, and you kind of just scrape together what you need 
And so to me, you're buying a new piece of equipment every time. Hmm. Hell yeah. Okay. So they're all ethereal and you, you can't equip them. <laughs> Only people who play Diablo is going to get that reference. <laughs> Specifically Diablo 2, I guess. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, um, so but going back to contract a little bit. Um, is contract uh, an integral part to the assassin class? Um, kind of like... Um, well, okay. I guess my question is, is it more like reprise and crush where it's going to be like an occasional thing that appears on the cards or is it more integral uh, to the assassin class kind of like how boost is to, to mechanologists where boost is on like almost all of their attack actions and we'll have to see next time we revisit assassin i it just got to be sorted out i i could see things going both ways uh it, it really we don't ever I don't think we ever really want to prescribe answers to those type of questions. Like we want to stay free flowing. We want to see where the ideas take us and we'll, we'll do what makes sense. We'll do what's best for the game. What's best for the hero. Nice. Well, once again, awesome. I, I'm looking forward to seeing, to seeing how things progress. Absolutely. Me yeah. too. Um, okay. So this is one that I wrote that that's a little, a little bit longer. This is more of a numbery numbery question that I just very curious on it. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk about numbers and, and breakpoints. Uh, I don't know how much of that side of things that you had a hand in, in terms of like, uh, I, I guess it would be developing rather than designing. Um, Assassin has a lot of like fantastic breakpoints. It has a, a lot of uh, fours for attacks, uh, threes for blocks. Uh, my question, I guess, is, is this design philosophy exclusive to Assassin? Um, or is it one that we might see adopted for future designs? For example, Rangers getting more three blocks because Rangers currently have a lot of two blocks and a lot of their non-arrow attacks. Yeah, I, I don't think it's like a pointed effort to say, let's hit more breakpoints with our designs. It's just you, you put the right tools for the job in the hero's kit. And in this case, you know, with a very small card pool, it was important that Arachne had the right density of attacks that could go ahead and be threatening and, you know, give your opponents tough decisions. And a lot of that is like finding the breakpoint. So for this hero, this was the right thing to do. Maybe the next hero we make, you know, it's it's not right to jam those breakpoints over and over. Again, it's it's just it just feels like staying open, staying adaptable to what is best for the situation and, you know, never getting too caught up in like oh, this is the way it's done, so we'll continue to do it in the future. Like, always be questioning, always be evolving, always be trying to make things better. Um, and then, at the same time, have a willingness to say, okay, this thing works, we know it works, let's go back to that well again. And uh, combining both of those philosophies is very, very important to good TCG design, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think LSS does a great job with that, honestly. Uh, every new set they release, um, there something surprises me. Um, always for the better. But like, there's always something surprising in there that I'm like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? Yeah, and um, I think I think you see that reflected in Dynasty. Like, Dynasty oh, yeah. is a good mix of both oh, yeah. new and old. Like, there's a lot of old mechanics that are getting paid off, and we can just go and talk about like Rangers, right? Like, obviously there are there is this new mechanic, this the Sandscour Great Bow with the aim counters, but there's also just mm -hmm. traditional Ranger cards, also serving traditional Ranger needs mixed in with that. And I I think mm -hmm. one of the best things for us is finding finding ways for players to express their vision of the hero through deck building. So if you want to build aim counter Azalea, you should be able to do that. But if you just want to play old fashioned Azalea, look to the old way, play, you know, death dealer, redliner, whatever it is you want to play, do that too. We're, we're going to make cards to enable both those play styles. 
Yeah, that's what I like about the supplementary expansion sets is it opens up new lines to play things and new ways to experiment with things. That's why I really, really like them because it just gives you more options to play with existing heroes. Yeah, yep, sure. I, I agree. I, I think I think Everfest slipped a little bit from that goal. It didn't quite hit on exactly this, the same level. Uh, I think mm. Everfest was a good set. I don't know if it did enough to diversify gameplay styles, but I, I think Dynasty is absolutely a return to form and very much inspiring those alternate play styles. Just think of how many versions of Dash we've seen in these first few competitive weeks, be it you know Nitro Mechanoid Dash or Hanabi Blaster Dash. And yeah. sure, they kind of all have the same core, but you know in Flesh and Blood, small differences in deck construction lead to big differences in gameplay throughout the course of the game. And we're seeing a lot of different play styles from these dashes at this point. And I, I think that's another class that I'd really point to as a success in Dynasty. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I think Dynasty excels at what, what you guys are both talking about. It's the set, I think, it's the set that's... Hmm, how do I put this? I want to build more new decks because of Dynasty than any other set. Yeah, There's so many awesome and like interesting or maybe even like fun deck ideas there's like there's like tiger katsu there's rock yep. there's rock brute there's uh yep. this brainstorm combo wizard that i want to do with like flying cards. 300 damage apparently yeah <laughs> yeah but you use, like, like this is old news draw, draw a bunch yeah. of cards and then use your hope merchant's hood to draw more cards and then you have like your your potions of luck to drive in more off oh. It's so sweet. Just and there's drunk like drunk on the luck in the yeah. yeah. And there's like <laughs> I, I think there's like five or six. Oh, this is not including uh, Emperor deck, not including various assassin decks. These are just like other takes on classes that already exist. And I think Dynasty is a really big slam dunk for that yeah. in in ways that doesn't power creep things that already exist. So like mm -hmm. um like another example is like Warrior and doing like an axe warrior with the with the new axe. Maybe you can use the old axes, but I just love, like, how these sets open up this kind of thing. That's one of the yeah, reasons that, why I love these. Uh, there's no stuff. question that that Everfest also achieved that goal, right? You introduced Bravo Star of the Show, oh, and sure. the the Runeblade cards that came. Reven no question. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's no there's no question that absolutely the format was shaken up, but it was shaken up with a hammer. The way I look at it, it was just brute mm -hmm. force. These things are really strong, whereas the shakeup coming from Dynasty, I predict it'll be slower. I don't think it'll fly out the gate the way Everfest did, but I think long-term for what it adds to the game, it will add a lot more and, and give players a lot more room to express themselves. Yeah. I think you mentioned this as well, Bill. Like, um, There's not like any <clears throat> like strictly better cards. It's like just different versions of things you can build mm -hmm. around. There's nothing that you just like, oh, yeah, that's old news now. I'll just get this new one in. It's more like different lines you can go to rather than just power creeping it, yeah, which is good. Yeah. It's, nice. it's like more archetypes rather than like powerful cards that slot into yeah. pre-existing decks. That's exactly why I love Dynasty so much, because, yeah, like like we were we, we've talked about this multiple times. And one of my pet peeves uh, when new sets are coming out and people are trying to uh, uh, evaluate cards is they're looking at them through the lens of what we currently have so it's like we saw the very first card we saw the emperor and within 10 minutes of the emperor being spoiled there were people that were hyped being like hey this is a new card and then there were also other people being like this card's unplayable and it's like okay well we don't know what royal does yeah. yet we haven't seen any of the new warrior or wizard cards like there could be something else going on i saw multiple people and... say it was broken multiple people say it was unplayable like yeah, like in the span like, of like the same timeline, it was great. 
but but yeah so i think that dynasty absolutely knocked it out of the park in terms of like cards that make you think instead of cards that are just oh this replaces half of my existing deck because i think yeah. that's really lazy design um one of the reasons i think strictly better one of the reasons i think we're successful about that is that we care a lot about power creep it's something that mm -hmm. we are keeping a very Good. close eye on and you know that's that's not anyone at lss's design philosophy it's not power creep things when we do power creepy stuff and we we will i mean that's the nature of card games you have to be willing to push push boundaries when we do power creepy stuff it's never done with a flippancy it's always a huge huge debate is this the right time to go ahead and power creep why are we offering this to this class or to this particular hero what is it accomplishing long term for the game all of those questions are debated ad nauseum because we find it so so important to actively manage power creep yeah, oh, that's fantastic to hear. One one thing that I noticed in Dynasty, and, and this is actually in regards to Assassin in particular, is um, the introduction of more offhands. Like this is, I'm holding up the the ornate Tezin. Um, for me per personally, currently, this is one of my favorite cards to run in Arachne. I run uh, Dagger and then ornate Tezin. Was this kind of like by design, or just kind of something that's happening more organically over time as as design? you know, goes on. Like, just these offhand toolkit kind of things. Because, like, in my array, yeah. I run this, and I also have, like, the, the lantern as well. Lantern, yeah. I, yeah. I, th I think it's a mixture of both. I, I personally am a huge believer in the offhand space. I think, again, yeah. as far as expressiveness, as far as, like, having the right tool for the job, the offhand space does a load of that, and there should be some advantages to having a one-handed weapon. You have to feel it, and if you just copy your one-handed weapon 100% of the time in your second slot, then you kind of just have like a two-handed weapon that's split among two slots. You're not actually accomplishing the versatility of a one-handed weapon. So I hope as the game grows, as the game evolves, we'll see absolutely nutty combinations of things. I, I you know, some heroes, they're going to be very focused on two-handed weapons, of course. That's just the nature of that hero. But I want to explore this space. I think it's very interesting. I think it leads to diverse play experiences because one of the things about Flesh and Blood, you start with a lot of stuff in play, right? You start with your hero in play. You start with your equipment in play. You start with your weapons in play. So a lot of games can play out. I, I wouldn't say any game of Flesh and Blood plays out the same. It's such a deep game that's hard for it to do so. But there's a similar foundation in place in a lot of games and a similar starting point for a lot of games. But if you start to diversify that equipment suite that weapon suite, that offhand suite a little bit more, then you're finding new starting positions. And the capacity of these decks to do different things is going to develop more and more over time, the more we're able to fill out that offhand space. So you can just put me personally down as a huge fan of offhands. I think they are, uh, you know, sort of just freshly mined territory. We're just getting into what's possible in that slot. And I would expect more as time goes on. That makes me so happy <laughs> so happy yeah. to hear that man like i i've always been kind of like you know on the the edge of like the offhand stuff because we've had like shields and we've had the arcane lantern but like the the ornate tezin really really opened it up for me and i was like so stoked to have like this currently i have the the lantern and the the fan but every new set that comes out now i'm going to be looking is there a new offhand like do i have a new option for my toolkit and um I think that's just another one of the, the awesome things to kind of come out of dynasty design. Um, so yeah, I'm yeah, so, well, so, so that's so a, it's a it's a brand new it's a brand new like space to look at really as well, isn't it? Like starting with a with a certain card on the board 
you know, is a, is a, is a whole new space that you can explore, I think. So having more cards that start in play that do different things based on the matchup or what, ha- what have you would be a nice thing to, to expand on, yeah. Yeah, I, so. I do want to share one, one quick story with the Tezen that I did on stream against uh, Ian. Uh, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ian Kenderdine, uh, Brian. Yeah, Ian and I got to chat a bunch. I, Ian's such a cool dude, and I, I butchered his name the first Pro Tour that we covered. I, oh. I called him Ian for about oh. uh, <laughs> a full round. And it just His name is spelled like slightly differently than I'm yeah. used to seeing Ian. And we met in person at Worlds and got to chat. Just an awesome guy, loves Leviah, loves professional wrestling. We talked a bunch about his involvement oh, yeah. with professional wrestling and just – an awesome dude. Very, very cool guest to have on the show. Yeah, he, he's awesome. And uh, he's been guest twice, twice here. But um, I play a lot of Flesh and Blood with him. In fact, he's probably the one of the people I play the most Flesh and Blood with. Uh, and personally, he's he's also played 500 Flesh and Blood events, which was like one of the topics yep. of the, la- the last episode. Worlds was his 500th, actually. Yep. yep. Uh, <laughs> and so I actually used the fan to great effect. He was playing uh, Rock Brute. And I was playing Arachne. This is a, a stream. And I'm coming in with a surgical extraction, right? And he blocks. He, he overblocks a little bit. I think he blocks for a total of six here so he doesn't get a card ripped from his hand. And then uh, at instant speed, I crack my Tezen, tuck a card, and hope to draw into an attack reaction, like a zero-cost reaction. And I do. I rip a shred off the top nice. and immediately play it. Um, so <laughs> that's the kind yeah. of like play patterns and, and stuff that these offhand cards give you where otherwise you would just have like another dagger or whatever um yeah tessin's great i i really love that card it, it's so cool uh, i'm just thinking of the actual the actual art of trying to surgically extract while fanning someone at the same time yeah exactly <laughs> cool you gotta just you know give them a little dust off just cool yeah. them down yeah. yeah just just whip up the fan into it into its collapsed form and then whack him on the head with it yeah yeah <laughs> Um, okay, cool. So I have one more question. This is kind of like a, a canned question, but I want to make it a little bit different uh, before we get on to community questions. So uh, this is, what is your second favorite designed card or card that you've designed? Uh, well, you haven't even seen my my first favorite one yet. Okay, you've well, seen my first favorite one from Dynasty, but ooh. you have not seen my first favorite card yet. So okay. check back next time I'm on the show and we can talk about both my first and okay. second. Okay, so we'll do that. How about what's what's your favorite overall design flesh and blood card so far? Not just from not not one that you've done, but just overall the design that you like the most. Man, there's so many awesome ones to stand on. I I think I would actually just go with the the first bow i i think it's i think it's just yeah. about like loading loading up your arsenal and like that whole mechanic was really what's so, like this is it was exactly like jim said this is this is different this this feels this feels more important than like just uh loading up a, a random card this is my arrow i've pulled back my drawstring and i i think it really hammered home the flavor for me as a Super flavorful game, something that was yeah. worth my time and worth full exploration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fantastic choice. I, I, I geeked out quite a bit when I first saw that. So, another quick, quick little story. My first preview card ever was Knock the Death Whistle, um, and so for, it was for Arcane Rising, Knock the Death Whistle. I had only been playing the game for a couple months because the game had only been out for a couple months, and uh, they showed me Knock the Death Whistle, and I'm like, what? 
Like, what, what, what is this even doing? Yeah. Um, and then, the, then they Let's also the they also showed me Azalea, Death Dealer, and I think Searing Shot as well. Like, okay, so you need context for this to understand what 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 it's even doing. And when I saw it, when I understood what was going on, I was like super stoked. Which is one of the reasons why Azalea has been one of my favorite heroes for a very long time, um, just because of just because of that and how flavorful and just really exciting it was. Yeah, I love the Rangers, all of them. Yeah, Rangers. I love Rangers too, and I'll keep playing Ranger even if they're not as good as some of the other classes. Man, <laughs> I, I think Dynasty brought some experience. real tools to Azalea. I, I honestly think Azalea is going to get some living legend points during this next season. I, I feel it in my bones. Yeah, that's, um, that'll make some great content for you, as. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I haven't even experimented with it yet, but um, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. I'm looking forward to. It. I, I I like a lot of the new uh, new Ranger cards in particular. I like Heat Seeker, even though it's not one of the aim counter cards. I love Heat Seeker. Yeah, you don't need it, do you? Yeah. Oh yep. yeah. yeah Heat Seeker's incredible. I, I think Sand Scour Great Bow is maybe the best bow Rangers have ever gotten. Uh, you know, Volterra might have something to say about that, but you can't <laughs> play Volterra as Azalea, yeah. so uh, <laughs> you know well, you make do with what you have. Volterra's yeah. uh, it's going to be hard to beat Volterra to be honest. You can use it twice at instant speed. And give all your things go again or plus one, depending yeah, on what you need. It does a lot. It's very it does versatile. A lot. It's a very good book. If you've got, if we've got enough time as well, I just want to ask an off the cuff question yeah, regarding like because Voltaire just reminded me of this, right? So Azalea is a ranger only, right? She is just a ranger. She has no talents. So going forward, as you develop the game and stuff, is that something that you're going to look at? Supporting more is just the OG classes that have no talents, or is it mainly just going to be adding talents to heroes as they develop their character or what have you, because that's I, obviously. Yeah. I, I don't think we want to abandon anyone. I, th I think all nice. aspects of the game are important. Like certainly, you know, talents do feel like an evolution, but there'll be times yeah. for just the, the baseline uh, classes. There'll be times to add new talents to the mix. There'll be time to add new classes to the mix. Again, it's just about like, being as free flowing as possible, doing what's best for the game, doing what's right for the game. And, you know, one of the things that if you talk to James at all at any event, one of the first things he asks you, and maybe not with you guys because he knows you guys, but one of the first things he'll ask you is, who's your favorite hero? And that's that's not just lip service. Like he wants to know who people love, who they want to see more support for. And one of the things yeah. I know when people stand in line waiting, you know, sometimes hours to speak to James, one of the things they want to accomplish by standing in line for that long is going up and saying, give me some support for my hero. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> James, James absolutely listens to that. So I, I, I think we'll do all of it going forward. Nice. nice. Um, all right. Yeah. Let's get into some community questions. We have a, a decent number here before we get into the arsenal step. I imagine some of these will be pretty quick and some of them might not. So the first one, uh, I'm just going to summarize it. Uh, basically the idea is as a designer or developer, how do you uh, determine when a card is, um, when, when, like, so the question is asking about on hit effects. So when a card hits versus hits a hero, how do you quantify that and how do you determine which is which and where do you use it in certain circumstances? So like whether it's going to trigger off hitting an ally. Basically, exactly. Is the question. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Some some of it is class. Some of it is tools for the job. Some of it is uh, you know readability. Sometimes some effects are much easier to comprehend when they're 
isolated to only heroes or they only make sense thematically when they're isolated to heroes. So there's a whole host of answers to this question. Uh, and when there's like a million answers, it often feels like there's no answer. Yeah. So I, I that's a bit frustrating, but it it is just balancing out all these factors and figuring out what really makes sense for the card in question. Are they valued any differently when determining a card's like stats? Depends. Again, it just depends. Like it depends what the actual effect is. Um, I mean, you know, if there was an effect, this is stupid hyperbole, but there was an effect that says if this hits, this wins the game. I mean, I guess that does exist, right? In some sense with Regicide. Um, But like just a very simple version of that, obviously that would sway things in terms of like, well, if this works on allies, uh, you know, this is very much probably has to cost 13 to play or something ridiculous so uh it it really is just depending so much on the context and what the card is doing and again it's about fluidity it's about not saying there is a rule to do this this is how we do it it's about doing what makes sense for the situation and you know you can get yourself into trouble with fluidity i won't deny that you take some shots and sometimes you'll miss but we're open to the idea of missing if it's keeping things exciting and i think we've also garnered a lot of trust and respect from our player base at this point, particularly with how we manage the mistakes we make and our ban lists. I think, you know, we're, we're very, very cognizant of player experience, what players want. We're constantly reviewing formats, constantly talking about what is best. You know, maybe you saw some kind of weird looking experimentation as we head into worlds, things like the storm striders ban, a little bit different than things we've done before. And we tried it. We listened to people and it sounded like we ultimately didn't hit the mark with it. You know, Icelander is still the most played hero. It basically took Kano out of the metagame. So we went back to the drawing board. And I think the only reason we can afford to do things like that is because we have the respect and trust of our players. So that's why I'm a little bit more comfortable playing fast and loose with definitions and figuring out just what works for what situation, because we'll fix it if we have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that came up that I thought about when you're talking about um, or when you're going over that answer is uh you mentioned regicide and i just thought like regicide i think is the only alternate win condition in flesh and blood right now is is that a design space that you and the team are willing to explore more like alternate win conditions again every design space is open if we find good implementations we find story sense for it and that's why this was the right moment to do it right like you can't pick a better time to do this than with regicide because it's just perfect on point for the story so if we find another point in our story where something like that makes sense we'll do it again absolutely yeah that's good that you're marrying up the story and the theme with the cards as well which is very important to a lot of the people that care about that sort of thing so that's that's really good it's it's important to me i mean if you if you're not focused on the story you're telling with your cards you just have numbers that's it they're just numbers on cardboard and that's Mm -hmm. that's not what we make we make an experience we make a world and I, I think losing sight of that would be very very detrimental that's how you get people yeah. to care about the characters and the cards in the world yeah for correct sure. and that's why we have so much attachment though there's so many fans yeah. of our hero and I, I think that attachment it's a huge portion of flesh and blood success a tremendous tremendous reason why this game has resonated with so many people is because it does engender that kind of attachment to heroes so yeah i wouldn't lose sight of that for one second 100 percent um, well, speaking of heroes, this is what you call a segue. <laughs> this uh, person would like Good. to know the process of creating new classes, but specifically, um, how do they start uh, designing a class from the base level? How much influence 
do you take from the real world, um, and how much do you adapt it in game? And then they follow up with, uh, you know, was Assassin tough to balance, um, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I think when you're looking to make resonant cards, one of the things you are reliant on is tropes. Like if if what I believe an assassin to be is just night and day different from what everyone else believes an assassin to be, then it can't resonate with everyone, right? Like you have to yeah. get the shared communal perception of an idea and try and represent that shared communal perception as hard as that is. Like nobody ever completely shares perception, but you, you strive to try and speak to as many people as possible. So like, are we influenced by, I don't know if the real world's the right way, like traditional media, mm -hmm. traditional fantasy settings, you know, D&D &D classes. Absolutely. Those things are extremely, extremely important uh, just because they are foundational at this point to kind of like our world, our culture. I think it is if we made an assassin that didn't reflect what people generally expect an assassin to do, it would be a failure in my eyes. So mm -hmm. that's got to be a huge part of it. Yeah. yeah. And personally, I, I this is another just gushing about I love the design of the assassin class. When uh, I first started talking about assassin like a couple of years ago, a lot of folks were, would say something like, um, aren't ninjas just assassins? Like, isn't that just another word for a ninja? Uh, and I think you and LSS have done a fantastic job making assassin feel different and unique than just like, you know, martial artists stab stab you know kind of class mm. um especially you know the contract mechanic comes to mind that helps like really really flesh it out and give it a lot more flavor which is yeah i mean important i i in my head there are elements that those classes like share absolutely like obviously like both of them use daggers right so like that's a that's a pretty good point of overlap like there are there are moments but like there's so so much that those two classes have as individual identities where uh, I, I never really worried about distinguishing the two. They just weren't all that similar in my eyes. Yeah, for sure. Um, how do you know what's the limit of power that you can push in individual class cards? Uh, you know, there's, there's some things we've, uh, we've kind of seen the thresholds. We've seen how far we can go. Like, you know, should generic cards be more powerful than Art of War, Command & Conquer, and Light and & Strike? Probably not. That's that's probably about the upper limit. Pretty good. Uh, you know, so we can look back to things like that. We can look back to the hallmark cards of a class. I think it we're informed a lot by history when it comes to like how powerful is too powerful. And like I said, that's not to say we will never make powerful cards again. That's not how this works. Powerful cards are exciting. They're fun. We want to make them. It's about making them in a unique way, in a way that's fun to play. And when we do create power, because we certainly will have to at some point, that's just how things work. We have to do it with reason, we have to do it with purpose, and we have to do it with great care. And I, I think we've sort of set the guideposts, again, holding up those three generics is really strong. And then when you get to individual classes, I think we could all think of a, a card in a class that is sort of like the iconic card that's probably about as far as we want to go and you know we've we've set those thresholds at this point and they seem to be working really well for our game classes seem balanced i mean look at this last cc metagame we just went through talk about every class showing up i think we're in a really really good space for balance and diversity in our game right now i think dynasty's only going to make it even stronger and it's hard to want to stray that far from what we're doing presently 
given the success we're having right now. So yeah, I mean, yeah. with that said, um, which heroes do you think will be the definite or the defining heroes for the next competitive scene? And uh, where do you think Arachnu specifically will fall in? Yeah, I you would be crazy to ignore Dash, right? Like Dash just got some of the most face-up tools oh, yeah. from this set. I think Dash was already very good. I think you'd be crazy to ignore Icelander after having just won the world championships and showing that there is a level of mastery you can bring to that deck that pays you off. Uh, at the same time, like I said, Azalea is a lot better. I, I would not be shocked to see her get Living Legend points. I think OG Bravo has gotten a lot better. I think Reinar has gotten a lot better. All these heroes have picked up very, very important tools. Even like someone like Bolton, who is just at the dregs of the metagame right now. Like Spirit of Arena is an important card for Bolton that could very much mm -hmm. matter in the coming months. So there's potential for all these heroes to gain. My hope, man, if we went through a ProQuest season where everyone was represented i would just be over the moon that would be incredible if we saw all of the adult heroes take down one event as, as far as arachne i think arachne sits slanting towards the bottom right now and i think that's a good thing i think arachne needed to come in being a hero that you know has to have its entire card pool pulled out of a supplemental set yeah. if it if it went to the top immediately there's nowhere left to go right yeah. like that's it we've yeah, we've sure. done it we've done the assassin thing oh, and uh, you <laughs> yeah, you end up with a Starvo, and like that's no good. I, I think the place where Arachne is falling right now, you know, I, I played Arachne at my last armory. I had a freaking blast. I got destroyed, uh, but I had a really good time, and I felt like I learned a bunch about both play and deck construction that I could apply to the next week, and I think I can keep making Arachne a little better every time and a little better every time. And if Arachne won a pro quest this season, I wouldn't be shocked. If they need to pick up a few more tools before they're ready to really compete on that top stage, I wouldn't be shocked about that either. And I think that's a really good place for a newly introduced hero to fall. We don't want to make a must buy hero. Like if yeah. this is just the best hero in the game and you have to go spend all this money on Dynasty to even compete in the metagame anymore because this is clearly the best thing. That's that's not fair. Like that's just not the way LSS is ever going to operate. We we care about our fans. We want to make an awesome product. And I am I am entirely pleased with where Arachne has fallen on the power scale. Nice. That's, I think that's a really good and healthy way to think about it, to be honest. Um, especially the the not wanting it or not being happy that it's not like immediately tier one or S tier or however you want to say it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's good. And also that goes means... that goes back too to our players though, and trusting our players to trust us and to give us the time to like. You know, a, a lot of TCGs, I think you have to make that hero overpowered or players will go, I'm not buying this set, yeah. stupid set, Why do they, this is unplayable. But like, I think our players trust us so much and they know that we do have like long-term vision and we want long-term health for the game. And it's not about squeezing that dollar out of your wallet right now. It's about making this engaging sandbox to play in for a very, very long period of time. Yeah, and for me personally, as, a, as someone who loves to brew new decks, it just, uh, it gives me a nice little puzzle to deal with right especially in all, all of the formats like especially i think arachne um currently excels in class constructed where you have a much larger pool of cards um at your disposal like a, what a lot of folks call a sideboard uh, whereas in blitz you don't really have that you just have your equipment suite so um it's been a really fun puzzle like building various arachne decks i'm holding a, a upf arachne deck right now that has some weird <laughs> cards in it i'll tell you that i'm running um uh, pick a card, any card, which I think is a, sure. a, little, a little spicy for Arachne, but it's also just really fun for multiplayer. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, my, my Arachne decks have 
been literally all over the place. Last week at uh, my my armory, I played Wounded Bull, Fandel's Fighting Spirit, Arachne. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I. I think like there's there's pummel arachne as a very real thing, despite the fact that all the class cards fall mostly yeah. at zero and ones. Yep. Like doing this with Fandel's fighting spirit, and you're just very blue heavy. You're very good at leveraging those spiders bites when you're threatening pummels on your commanding conquers. Like that is sort of a nightmare scenario for a defending hero. Also, you get a little bit more disruption into the deck, so like that's really important. Or you could be more red line, and you could be more just like I'm going to hit these breakpoints and force over and. I think all of these strategies are interesting and good, and I've enjoyed exploring them all. Yeah, the the one that I haven't built yet, but I really want to build, and I think could be a lot of fun. And this kind of leads into the next question: Is a turbo mill Arachne using <laughs> um, eradicate and trying to pump up eradicate as much as I can to just mill them out? Yep. Because you know, for, for Blitz, you only have forty cards, and so I kind of want to do that. I don't know if it's going to be good, um, but it's still something that's there that, that I want to do. And that kind of leads into the next question that was asked by our community. And that is, uh, how do you feel about adding mill as a real mechanic in flesh and blood? And then what are the risks? And then I add on, on top of that, what are the opportunities? Yeah, I, I think I, I covered a bunch of that earlier. It's yeah. just like, I, I'm aware that some players are sort of uncomfortable with the idea of mill. I respect that. And there is a reason why only eradicate goes really deep. And, you know, we we didn't pay off that archetype. Certainly that was something on our radar. Could you just turbo mill someone? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can try. You're welcome to try. You you only have that one card to use. Yeah, it's going to be exactly. tough. Um, oh. And I, I think it just is is all about moderation, understanding, like. Offering play experiences to both people. And as far as what it offers, this goes back to my uh, my own TCG history. The first competitive Magic deck I ever built was an actual factual Millstone deck. Oh, Blue let's white go. Millstone control. <laughs> Millstone is my actual favorite Magic card. I have loads of antiquities Millstones in oh, my house. Just, I've collected them over the years. And I I love the idea that you can engage and threaten your opponent on a different axis. I think it's very cool. I think taking yeah. away their tools is is very cool. And, you know, I I don't think every game should be focused around mill. I think it should be hard to mill someone. But I also think paying people who enjoy that strategy is a definite benefit. I, it's a design space as well. It's like not it's not all about playing all of your cards out of your hand for maximum numbers. You're you're interacting with the opponent in a different way, like whether that's banishing cards from their deck. Maybe, you know, in the future we can attack the hand instead um and then force that interaction a bit more because at the moment it just you know it seems to be that people want to get all the value out of their hands straight away whereas interacting in a different way i think is yeah i think is really good really good to yeah, explore that more one of the things arachne does is sort of reverts the game to a more classic state of flesh and blood i think and i, I yeah. think milling is actually part of that I, I think it's an important part of that because it is more challenging to sort of do that uh with like pure value numbers these days you have to add that second wrinkle that thing that no other hero can do otherwise you're just like you, you kind of get blown up by things like oldham bravo like they, they just do that way better so you need to offer a new way to play a mid-range strategy and i think mill is an important piece of that puzzle yeah nice. and and it's also not like super cut and dry in flesh and blood with mill especially the way that assassin works now banishing cards because we do have specifically a talent that like thrives on banished cards the shadow talent Absolutely. especially Absolutely. especially chain like 
Imagine like Arachne into Chain, which I have played in, in Clash, and it was absolutely brutal, by the way. Um, as, as the Arachne player, it was brutal. Um, yeah, not a good matchup. No, no, it's, it's, I can't think of a <laughs> Eradicate worse. Eradicate me, please. I can't yeah. think of a, mer- a worse matchup. It's like, it's one of those things where I was trying not to banish certain things, but then you still hit random cards off the top, and then it's like, oh, there's a bounding Demagon. Well, that sucks. <laughs> like, yep. yeah. Cheers. <laughs> but but I like I said I I don't think it's cut and dry um, with flesh and blood it's not it's not always a, a bad thing which is which is really interesting um, yeah I, I think I think Mills uh, an interesting interesting design space I wanted to say one other thing but I that I forgot I still want to build the turbo turbo mill deck and I still want to I want to use like <laughs> heart of Fiendal to like grind it out to gain life and uh, yeah, that, I, that was in my wounded bull arachne deck for sure. Yeah, it's it's in my UP, it's in my UPF deck too. But uh, I also want to use. Uh, I know I know you hate this card. I want to use Remembrance too to just get, get the to get the uh, Eradicates back. Because <laughs> like no, I, I I probably like overstate my hate for Remembrance a bunch. I I am fine with it as it exists now. I just think if it didn't exist, we'd have more creativity and more space to explore. That's all. Yeah, I mean I see it the same as like a, a Drone of Brutality where it kind of like almost fundamentally opposes one of the core tenets of the game. And Drone of yep. Vitality is like a card that just keeps coming back over and over again. And remember, it's kind of does that. You know, it's only a one-shot kind of deal. But you still get cards back where you otherwise wouldn't be able to get them back. So mm-hmm. um, I, I can see that card being on a, on a chopping block at some point in the future just because of that. Just because it does things that, you know, flesh and blood cards I don't think are designed to do. So, yeah. Mm. Um, the last two questions, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm going to ask them anyway because they were they were asked by the community. Give um, your shot, community. Go for yep. it. All right. So I'll just I'll just read this one word for word. When will LSS release details on PVE or player versus environment? I would love to hear details on what the gameplay structure will be. When it's ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a frustrating answer, but the the ultimate thing is that no one at LSS will be satisfied with putting out anything other than a top tier product. And I, I think you should, yeah. uh, I know it's frustrating. I know people are super excited for it and would love it yesterday, but when it is delivered, it's gotta be great. It's gotta be, I mean, uh, knowing James in his eyes, it's gotta be perfect. That's, that's just the way James is. And he's not going to sell something to anyone unless he believes it is entirely optimized, entirely as good as it can be. When it's as good as it can be, it'll get shared with the world. Yeah, and that—that's yes. how you know it'll be good because they're not gonna put it out until it's until it's good. So, it's yeah. not like a modern video game where they just release it on beta and then you have to test it and then give them the feedback. They just want to release the perfect thing straight away. Oh, like yeah, I don't—I don't remember who it was. It's a—it's I—I I, want to say someone associated with the Final Fantasy series, but there's like a very famous game design quote, which is uh, a a game released before it's ready is bad forever. And that, but a game that's released late is just late. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like exactly, there's some things yeah. you can't fix once you put out into the wild. So it's, it's, it's just gotta be done. Right. Yep. hundred percent. That's even like more true for card games. Cause it's not like, especially physical card games like flesh and blood. You can't like not patching. You can't patch a card. Yeah. game. I mean, you can errata, but that should be like an extreme last resort in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Uh, Although, with that being said, I do respect the fact that Flesh and Blood has done that. Um, especially the, the the thing that the thing that I really really respect about it more than anything is that it was done with a token hero. Um, that the briar was the thing to be errated because if it was something like a legendary piece of equipment or something, that would feel really bad. Because then all of a sudden it's like this card that I spent how much money on, um, just like doesn't work anymore um but for briar it's like this is just a token here you can print it out if you want to and it's fine or you can just use the previous one it's still legal um as long as you understand how it works well i think there's a second wrinkle to that even and this is what made it such a great errata from my point of view and something that like if we were to ever use it in the future i would i would push for it again i think there is a, a reasonable interpretation of the og as printed briar that would see it work the way it now currently works. Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's actually all that far afield from what is said yeah. on the first card. So mm-hmm. if you are able to very, very closely tread the line of that text where it's not it, like if you're changing a three to a two, you can't fix that. Like there's there's no there's just a clear mer- misrepresentation on every single card yeah. printed forever. If you're sort of mixing the words a little bit and having them mean something which they could be favorably interpreted to mean, I think that's okay. I think that's a very explainable thing to ask your players to do. I think that's like the perfect and probably one of the only ways to do physical card errata, to be honest. I've, I I really despise errata in general, but if you're going to do it, I think that's the, the way to do it because... At least that way helps mitigate the feel-bads when you're sitting down against a new player who doesn't know, who isn't in, you know, the, the digest, digesis of the community, who doesn't know everything, and you're like, oh, that card doesn't do what that does. It actually does something else. Like, it feels bad. They're going to think you're, like, trying to get one over on them or cheating or something. And so mm-hmm. doing it that way, where it's not like swapping a, a, a three to a four or whatever... Um, is is the best and in my opinion the only way to do it otherwise it's just rough it's really rough yep agree entirely yeah um and the last question is one that i haven't actually thought about but uh reminded me of actually old once again magic things um but this person's asking about it in regards to pokemon they say is lss planning on making worlds decks like pokemon has and i know magic used to do world championship decks as well um do you like the idea of that and what do you think of it? And then they describe what it was. And basically what World's decks were, at least for, for Magic, is they are pre-constructed decks that have all of the spicy cards in them, but they're not tournament legal. They have uh, The Magic ones had gold borders and then like a little signature on it, and then the card backs were unique to that season. This is something that I bought when I was a kid because it was, a, it was an easy way to get really nice cards. Uh, well, I, I used to have the Kai Buddy one. Kai Buddy yeah. one, the artifact one. Yeah, I used to love that. Yeah. Playing with that. I used you to get, feel like a those, rock baller. Get those Grim Monoliths, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I had all of them. Uh, so here's where I get to use my disclaimer that I gave at the beginning of the podcast. This is just Brian talking. I have I have no <laughs> idea what the answer to this Contact question it. is. I I like the world decks that Pokemon and Magic did. If they showed up in Flesh and Blood, I would be happy about it. But I have no information. I have no idea if it's something that's in the works. Not even something I would really you know talk about or contribute to. So uh, you just get my answer on that one, not an LSS answer. Yeah. What? <laughs> What did you guys think? I haven't, I've never, I don't know, uh, Bill or Az's opinion. What do you guys think of the, those world pre-con deck kind of things? I, I, cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I've always considered them to just straight up be a net positive. Um, I like the, the fact that magic stopped doing stuff like that. They stopped doing the world champs decks and then also like collector's editions. Oh yeah. Um, I, I liked those always. Um, I thought that it was just a totally fine thing to do. It doesn't hurt anybody. Um, it actually like pays homage to the people who care enough about your game to take it to a level where they're actually winning. Um, so it, it like, it honors the community that way. And it honors the community in a way where it's like, okay, you can get a gold bordered tunic, um, that you can just play with your friends with, and it's totally fine. Um, or you can have this deck that you just want to jam that has like a, you know, it's like getting, um, any sort of, um, like a, like a rookie trading card for like, uh, baseball or whatever. It's like, okay, well, this is a card that was played in a deck that, that my favorite flesh and blood player won a tournament with and like that's a cool piece of memorabilia too like i don't know to me um world champs decks are like a no-brainer i I think that they're fantastic (laughs) yeah i i agree um and like um i honestly think they're no different than like playing with this tunic sleeve and being like i don't have a real tunic but uh, this this sleeve is going to be my tunic for this game because we're just playing a casual game. I see it like that. Yeah. But actually, it's an official product that you buy from the company, so you support the company. Uh, you get something cool. Um, the 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 winner of the the tournament, like you know Michael Hamilton or whatever, um, has like this deck immortalized, you know, as a product. I think it's really cool. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely. Because because yeah. that's that's the nicest thing too is outside of an actual like competitive. Um, setting the decks are just totally indistinguishable from real decks um and also they don't run the risk of being like oh well this might be a counterfeit card it's very obviously not a real game piece that you could take to a tournament but it still functions as a real game piece um in basically every other scenario i literally used gold bordered rishadan ports and uh like um that kind of stuff when i was a kid when we were just kind of like playing around with decks so yeah Yeah, i I I think it's great um sweet well that that does it unless you guys have any other questions we can move on to the arsenal arsenal step the 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 official step that we don't actually have a name for yet but we just keep calling it the arsenal step it's a good one (laughs) i i do like that you said in the docket here uh because brian is the guest he has priority he does have priority nobody has priority in the arsenal step yeah (laughs) yeah well you are you are a judge (laughs) <laughs> but brian still very has, technically but, but, but yeah. brian still has prior priority so yeah let, let's let's move on over to that so this is the part of the podcast where um someone can talk about something that they're very passionate about outside of the world of flesh and blood and brian as our guest like bill said has priority so uh brian would you like to talk about uh something outside of flesh and blood that you're like really into well like I said, I, I wasn't aware there was a world outside of flesh and blood, but if this world truly <laughs> does exist, um, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I'm passionate about a lot of things. I'm passionate about uh, animals. I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about uh, other forms of video gaming. I, I love all forms of gaming. I've just been a devout gamer my entire life, so be it, you know, handheld gaming or playing games on my PC or my PS5. I am I'm constantly gaming and now I do it with kind of a different lens where I'm always trying to learn something I could do better while I'm gaming. Mm-hmm. Um but it it is still so fundamental to my life and it just goes back to like the idea of how fortunate I am where the thing that I have very much based my entire existence around is now like 
the thing I get to wake up and do every day. It, it is is such a good position to be in. Um, and I guess I will take this moment in the Arsenal step to encourage people to, you know, believe in themselves and chase the things you want to do. Just because there's a path laid out in front of you, it's not always the path you have to follow. Uh, you you get to set your own path through this world. And, uh, you know, I have some survivorship bias informing this for sure. But I think if you believe in yourself and are willing to take some chances, sometimes you could find yourself in a situation that's better than you ever dreamed of. And uh, you, you, there's literally not an amount of money you could pay me to go be a lawyer again. So uh, and I, <laughs> nice. and I know that because they were very close to paying me it. So and it still was not enough. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. If there's one thing that I've learned from my friends who are also lawyers, it's that that is very true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's kind of like a, a meme, but uh, it, it, I think it's true. It's uh, what is it? Uh, you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take. Right. You, you got to yeah, try. Sure. Like, if you don't try, there's a guy from the office said that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, very, very smart individual. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's true, though. Right. You, you got to try. And if you don't. If you don't try, then yeah. there's no chance. So, yeah, it's I, pretty. It's pretty surprising most... what things can sort of materialize out of decisions that you, you know, you'd be like, oh well, I shouldn't make this choice because, you know, I I don't think that I'm good enough or people would be interested or whatever. Um, like it's it's pretty surprising that the things that people will latch onto, especially if they they tell that they can tell that you have passion behind it. Passion is a really important oh, yeah. thing. Because, I mean, there are people, like, there are YouTube channels that you can see that are, like, monstrously popular, but you look at their content, and it's like, they're obviously phoning this in. Um, and, like, maybe it appeals to a bunch of, you know, whatever demographic you want to prescribe to it, but it doesn't appeal to me. And there will always be people like that. There will be people that don't prescribe to your thing, and there will also be people where it's like, oh, why don't people see this thing in this creator that I see? Um, and there will be people that, are, that stand behind you, like the Azalea Cult. The Azalea cult is such a great idea because <laughs> who doesn't love Azalea? We literally just talked about how good of a design Azalea is. <laughs> That's what I mean as well. It's like the, the it's like the the hero centric part of it is a passionate part of it, and you know you want to rally behind the heroes that resonate with you for whatever reason. Azalea was born in the pits. She's having to scavenge her way and do these horrible contracts in order to survive and that will resonate with some people's backgrounds in life so you know if you can get behind that hero and get behind that the whole archetype that they represent i think it's yeah it's definitely a definitely a good space to explore if you are a creator is just share what you're passionate about and that's yeah that's that's good that, that's what allowed me to basically hit 1k subscribers Yo. recently i think the whole Which the whole azalea cult thing yeah. yeah cheers mate yeah congratulations um, man very very yeah, happy so it, i told you i told you it happened you're like ah well i'm not gonna get you know, to th a thousand subscribers <laughs> never never yeah. doubted you for a moment my friend never yeah. stopped plugging <laughs> that's not just word that's Sorry. not just like uh me saying it i i truly i didn't i i knew you'd get there man so yeah but i, I think that's i think that's a nice sort of way to round it off really it's just like again like just Agreed. just follow what you're passionate about a nice inspirational arsenal step so cheers for that yeah. brian <laughs> yeah. that, that that's the core of flesh and blood right like if you've listened to james tell his story he he risked everything to put together yeah. flesh and blood because he yeah. found his passion there's the thing he cared about more than anything else in the world and if you don't think this game reflects that and if i i will just tell you having spent you know time with james in new zealand as fans of flesh and blood which i still very much count myself as one of 
we couldn't be any more fortunate than to have that dude in charge of things because he will literally give every single drop of his soul to make this game as good as possible, played by as many people as possible. He will he will give until there's nothing left. I can guarantee you that. And yeah. it's very, very rare that the creator of something which is as successful as Flesh and Blood retains that level of devotion. You might have it at the start. It's very easy to get dragged off that path, though. But to retain it now, you know, after he's been working on this game for a very long time now, with three years out in the commercial market, and he's still giving absolutely everything he has to it, oh, it's yeah, just man. a good spot for us fans to be in. It really is. Any, anyone who went to Worlds saw the lines, man. <laughs> James was in line yeah. for, like, hours and hours. As and I stood in line to go see James for... For how how long were like a couple hours at least, and it's really funny when, when we got up to James. The first thing he said to me is like, he's like, um, "Hope you weren't waiting too long in line." And I'm, or he's like, "How long were you waiting in line?" I was like, "You you don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know." Um, yeah, he, he's a. Uh, but now, but now his voice is eternalized at the start of every podcast. It's like, "Welcome to the Living Legends That's podcast." <laughs> that that is true. Um, what a guy. We have, yeah, we the, have the seal of approval. The point is that like. You know, time is valuable, and he devoted a lot of his time, like a lot, a lot yeah. of his time to. to yeah, and continues to. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I can't think of any other, you know, creator of a game, CEO of a company who would do that to just, you know, wait for hours just to to talk to his the fans, which is incredible. So, yeah. Anyway, so that that'll be a nice little uh, cap off to this episode of the Living Legends podcast. First of all, I want to say thank you so much, Brian, for coming on, talking about Assassin, working at LSS, all that kind of stuff. It's very much appreciated. We appreciate your time, man. My pleasure. Hopefully I didn't reveal any secrets that got me fired on this podcast. I think <laughs> I did a good job <laughs> I think of holding all the secrets down. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a contractor anyway, so you that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm always, <laughs> I could always be out the door the next day. So no, uh, I uh, I do think that you guys provide such a valuable contribution to our community. Like, it, it's just everything to have content creators like you putting forth this content on a week to week basis. Everything you do on your YouTube channels, everything you do in every sphere you work in, it's just like so important for the growth of this game. And I'm so thankful to have you all uh, getting the good word of either Azalea or Flesh and Blood out there, whichever one you want to do. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, if I've convinced at least one person to try Flesh and Blood, I consider that I'm sure successful. you've convinced many more than that. Many, many more. Yeah. I've, been, I've been told a few things, but... That's the yeah, goal, though. At, at the end of the day, that's that's the goal. I just want people <laughs> to play this game that I love so much. And if they do, then I've completed my goal. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, where can... Contract uh, completed. Contract, exactly. Yeah. Contract completed. Get to create us some silver. <laughs> um, One silver headed yeah. your way. He's got <laughs> yeah. more silver. He's got... You're on gold, Cal. That's what you're on. <laughs> no, no, no. Maybe, maybe I have multiple, I have multiple con contracts on the combat channel. Create multiple yeah. silver. There we go. Yeah, get get my mask back. Um, anyway. In those black tie whispers, you look great in those black tie whispers, mate. Mm, yeah, yeah, sleek. Um, <laughs> anyway, Brian, where can folks find you if they'd want to to follow uh, all of your goings on? Yeah, you could still uh, check out my podcast, the Arena Decklist Podcast, which we put out every single week. Uh, I, you know, I mentioned a constantly evolving relationship with Magic, but I have so much foundational respect for that game it has shaped so much my life uh there's there's no world in which flesh and blood is not here if not for magic you certainly have to recognize you know the backs you're standing on and i still have so much love for what's capable 
in, in that design space of magic. It may not be getting executed right now, but I still enjoy exploring <laughs> new cards uh, and hanging out with my good buddy Jerry every week. So check out that podcast. Uh, if you want to follow me over on Twitter, it's at B-R-Y-N-G-O. I wouldn't. I don't recommend it. I just generally <laughs> throw some unhinged stuff up there every now and then. Uh, but if that's your thing, feel free to come hang out. We could we could hang out there. We could talk flesh and blood. We can talk metal, maybe, which I'm always happy to talk about. Talked about with my friends a little bit before the show. Hell yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And, and by the way, someone get on starting that that fab metal discord. I'm in one Just, for magic yeah. and I, I don't participate oh, all that much, but uh, it, that. it's a, yeah, it's a good one. And if we get a, a flesh and blood equivalent going, I think that's a nice space to find some new music. There is, yeah. there is definitely there. I can confirm there is something cooking for that. Nice. Really? <laughs> yeah. You should there is, let, yeah. let me know. DM me. I have backing. I have backing tracks already for oh. a, for a potential band situation. Really? So, like, really? <laughs> flesh and blood band situation yeah that's even deeper than i thought how, how, okay yeah. well as where can folks where can folks go find you that's a good segue isn't yeah, it exactly. yeah anyway uh so yeah uh, over over on twitter where my stream of consciousness is uh the, the actual tags for everyone's twitter will be in the overlay that you can see now actually so nice and easy for you to navigate over there uh but i'm uh, go again gaming az that's where i am on twitter and uh youtube is go again gaming and uh, as I mentioned earlier, just hit the 1,000 subscribers mark. So I just want to shout that out because uh, I'm really proud of that. Um, and uh, yeah, just um, loving life, really playing this game. Uh, so I'll throw that over to uh, to Bill now. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> very very happy to to see as shine because you know we've been we've been hanging out this whole time on the on the Living Legends podcast, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's. We wouldn't still have you here if we didn't like you. So we're we're happy exactly, to see you. Yeah. <laughs> happy to see you flourish. I mean, so, yeah. There's a reason I asked you guys to do this podcast with me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I'm Bill from the Spike Feeders. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BillTSF. Uh, I don't post very frequently on there, but when I do, uh, it's good stuff. My most yeah. recent idea for a post was asking people what their least favorite Pokemon was, mm. um, because mine least is favorite. very easily uh, Indeedee. If anybody knows mm. that Pokemon, uh, I, I hate the design of it. It is bad. Uh, uh, looks like a Teletubby. <laughs> mine, would, mine would be the key. The cl cleft key? Oh, cleft key? The one that's a bunch of keys. Yeah. That's, my, that's my least favorite. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair I hate one. the candelabra. What's the candelabra called? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. It's a, go it's a uh, ghost, can... though, isn't it? It's like a ghost. I think so, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, terrible. Uh, it's chandelure. chandelure. Oh, oh I love the name. It's a, it's a terrible yeah. Wow. That's so good. <laughs> no, but I, I, I love that. Um, yeah, anyway. My, so my, my, I'll, I'll just, just to tag on to that, Bill, my, le oh, yeah, my yeah, least yeah. favorite is everything everything after the original sort of 150. That's fair. I mean, well, actually, yeah. uh, no, actually, yeah, well, Pokemon Silver and Gold had some good ones, but then anything after that was just like, oh, come on now. Pokemon Silver and Gold is where <laughs> I consider Pokemon designed to have peaked, so that is the correct answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, All right, and <laughs> with that, yeah. uh, I am Shell, also known as Red Zone Rogue. You can find me at Red Zone Rogue and all that kind of stuff. You might be watching it here on the channel anyway. But thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Living Legends podcast. And uh, we'll see you next time. Adios, folks. Thank you very much.